0: My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. And your a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. The Lord. Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray, one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. O God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. You've got to feel bad for Tom Brady. Those are words I never imagined saying, or to survive saying in the New York Tri-State area. A few years ago when I was still a rabid New York Yankees fan, just the sight of Tom Brady would usually cause me to say a lot of uncharitable things and think a lot of uncharitable things. And now some of you sports fans out there are already thinking, Father Jim, that doesn't make any sense. Tom Brady plays football but not baseball. And yes, you are correct. As much as I enjoy a good football game, I was never a huge NFL guy. But As a former rabid New York Yankees fan, my irrationality would spill over, which meant that not only did I loathe the Boston Red Sox, but by geographical relation, the New New England Patriots as well. And Tom Brady, for most of his football career, was the poster child for the Patriots. Ergo, my irrational phases, Tom Brady was never someone that I had a lot of positive thoughts or feelings about. But whether you're a football fan or not, it's hard to avoid knowing about Tom Brady, who seems to be in the news quite a bit lately, especially the last few months. First, there's been story after story dissecting whether he and his wife are, are getting a divorce over his decision to return to playing football after officially announcing that he was retiring at the end of last season. Then there's been the doldrums that his team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, are experiencing with in at best average season so far, with most of the blame being directed at Brady. And then this past week, while appearing on a sports podcast as he was being interviewed, at some point he made a comparison to being on a football team as being like on a military deployment. And within minutes, the memes were flying with... Soldiers on deployment in horrific conditions around the world taking pictures of themselves and asking for an explanation of how they're being separated from their families and putting their lives on the line is in any way comparable to the hardest days that a professional football player experiences. Noting how badly that was received, Brady did apologize later in the week. And it was this last experience that really made me stop and pause and made me realize that I felt bad for Tom Brady, which, like I said, is a new experience. During my irrational fandom days, and having a tremendous love and respect for the men and women in the military, what they do, I probably would have been sharing some of those memes myself and piling on him. But when I saw the story and I read the reaction and then his apology, it hit me a little bit differently. Having had been a co-host and a regular guest on the international radio show for about 10 years, I can attest that when you're in the studio and you're just talking with the others in the room, you can get very loose and casual in your speaking. You're in that environment, you know the people there, you get comfortable and you start making inside jokes with each other, you poke fun at each other, and you're not as precise or have... This is well-thought-out answers to things because the people there know you. They accept what you're saying and where you're coming from. They're in a place where they're going to read the best of intentions. You can almost forget that you're speaking to a wider audience than that. Well, having had some experiences where a listener took words that I said out of context or words that others had said and attributed them to me and then having that going viral with calls for people to write the Archbishop about me was something that I thought was a completely forgettable exchange, so much so that I had to re-listen to check myself. What exactly did I say that people were getting upset about? So I found myself feeling bad for Tom Brady because I could empathize with that experience and I could put myself in his shoes and know how that felt. Why it matters. Why am I even bringing this up? because it gets to the heart of today's Gospel. What is Jesus getting at in this Gospel passage? In short, the disaster that the sin of pride wreaks in the lives of people, and the antidote to it, which is genuine humility. It's actually quite a humorous parable. Jesus has this Pharisee speaking this prayer where the Lord God is only mentioned to get his attention, to call out to make sure that God is listening. But then the Pharisee goes about praising not the Lord God himself. It's almost like the Pharisee wants the Lord God to join in his praising of himself and all that he's doing. I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on my whole income just to make sure those who might honor similar prayers don't miss the irony and don't miss the joke, Jesus uses an example of the tax collector who offers one brief sentence. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus explains that the tax collector goes home justified, not the Pharisee, which was shocking to his initial listeners. One commentator made the point that To make the comparison between these two men a little bit more obvious in our day and era, instead of a Pharisee and a tax collector, our modern equivalents would be like a theologian and some drug cartel leader. Just imagining the extremes of these individuals, it's almost hard to imagine one being held up as as an example for anything over the other guy. But where so many go off the rails with this parable is making assessments and conclusions, though, that aren't there. Jesus isn't dismissing the importance of fasting and tithing. Nor is he ignoring the train wreck of a life that this tax collector is living. Sometimes because we've heard these parables and has some familiarity with the the bulk of the New Testament, we can kind of have that mistaken notion that Jesus is always siding with the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and constantly upending those who are religious, and that's not quite accurate. Jesus has come to save all humanity. Jesus loves the tax collector and the Pharisee, and he knows how both of them need to change. The tax collector who has been basically conspiring with the Roman Empire against his fellow Jews. Profiting off an evil system and aligning himself with a lot of forces of darkness. He's in spiritual danger. His soul is in danger. In this moment, though, Jesus is rejoicing in the hope that still exists in that man. As he comes before God and is just honest and vulnerable and bears his heart and soul and says be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no excuses. He's not looking at any loopholes. He's not trying to come up with any justifications. He knows his life's a mess, and he confesses it as he comes before God, which the Lord in his love and his tenderness and his desire for the tax collector to be reconciled with him and with his people, that's what God rejoices over. God's desperate, to offer him his forgiveness. But that doesn't mean the tax collector can just walk away from the temple and return to his ways. Jesus loves sinners and pursues them and welcomes them, but the sinner has to change in order for that love to be internalized and to be actualized and realized, which is what the Pharisee forgets. Even if... His conscience is squeaky clean that day as he's examining it. Did he forget the times in the past when that wasn't the case? Did he forget the mistakes he's made? Did he forget when he was feeling unforgivable and was the beneficiary of mercy, where love met him in his misery and in his need? Which is the very definition of mercy, by the way. Did he forget all the blessings that have surrounded his life, the family, the friends, maybe even the material possessions that he was blessed to have that all contributed to him living a life where he never felt the need to make such a disastrous and horrible decision like becoming a tax collector? Did he forget he was a sinner and all the things that he was doing that were good and right and just, like being in the temple, like fasting and praying, all that was being upended by his pride. Again, Jesus loves sinners and pursues them and welcomes them. But the Pharisee has to remember that left to his own devices, that, that is all he is, as a sinner. It's God, when we accept those realities about ourselves, that responds to his grace and repents and turns away from sin and turns towards him. It's God who makes us a new creation the Pharisee has to change in order for that love to be internalized and actualized and realized. So neither of these guys has got it all together. They, neither of them have it all figured out. They still need to change. And not just they, but we need to change. Because we live in some really blasphemous times. The list of profanities that have been not just deemed acceptable by the world but now are being redefined as things that are virtuous and worth defending seems to be growing day by day and it's easy for any one of us to become discouraged or disillusioned or self-righteous or any combination of those things in response and that's what makes a story like Tom Brady's worth noting because the vulture-like reaction Amplified by social media where each and every one of us has an opportunity to join in the feeding frenzy, picking and dissecting and mocking the personal trials and the struggles and the setbacks and failures of, of someone else before we move on and go to the, the next celebrity, the next politician, the next media figure. All that creates this environment where people not only feel it's totally acceptable form of either news or entertainment or whatever it is they want to categorize it as, but that it's something for us that's acceptable to do in our own lives, with the people in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our classes, our families even, where we consume these stories, where we share them, we judge them, and we help anesthetize ourselves from looking internally. From doing some real examination of heart and soul, looking at what's weighing down my conscience or should be that I need to go to confession for. And so this vicious cycle continues where we just see and feel things are getting more vulgar all around us and there's nothing we can do. How do we break that cycle? How do we push against those profanities and those blasphemies and this evil? has to begin when we focus on the one area we have the most influence on, the one area that Jesus holds us most responsible for, which is ourselves. I remember that was a realization that was kind of hard to accept in the face of some horrific church scandals that have come to light in recent years. I was angry, I was upset, I was embarrassed hearing and seeing all these evil things coming to light, coming to public view, and spent many a day in my prayer telling Jesus just how angry, just how upset, and just how embarrassed I was, as well as a couple of suggestions of what he could do to fix the mess. But ultimately, I felt the Lord leading me to get back to basics. If I was angry and upset and embarrassed, that's good. That should be our reaction to sin and to evil. And if I want true healing and change to happen, that's good too. But I can only advocate for that, I can only understand that when I start with what this gospel is trying to remind us of. Which are two things. First, not to allow our gaze to be misdirected towards everyone else, and what it is they are doing or not doing. The devil loves it when we begin to play those comparison games and start to somehow justify my sins as not as bad as this. And my righteousness being proved as I'm better than that. And secondly, to to humbly focus just on my sinfulness, my weakness, and my brokenness, and entrusting that to the Lord to help me to, to pursue or even to desire to pursue holiness. It's striking because when we read the lives of the greatest of saints, they never forget the reality that they were sinners in need of God's mercy, and their lives were seen through that prism. Saint Augustine, for example, a father from the ancient church, and who centuries later, his writings as a philosopher and a theologian are still considered essential reading. When we hear his name and just some of his quotes and some of the titles of his works, you imagine this guy is this holy man thinking holy things, doing holy things, and that inspired all these reflections on the things of God. But it's actually the opposite. I stumbled upon a prayer of his in another book just the other day where I'm reading and he says, I present myself before thy holy face, O Savior, laden with my sins. Although I'm conscious of, my just, of the just punishment for my sins, I do not on that account cease to commit fresh ones every day. And when you chastise me, I make the best of promises in the world. And as soon as you lift me up, I forget all I promised. I make to thee, O oh God, a sincere confession of my sins, because unless you forgive me, you may justly destroy me. Grant me, my Savior, what I beg, although I don't deserve. I know when I first read that, it was a bit shocking, and there's an the impulse to think that's too extreme, or to play armchair psychologist and diagnose them with something that makes it a little bit more acceptable rather than imagining a man pursuing holiness who would become a beloved saint having that type of self-reflection because then we can dismiss him and not take his words and example to heart. And if that were all he wrote, if that's all he believed, you might have a point. But that wasn't it by a long shot. His confidence and faith was born on reflecting on how God had saved him over and over again. And his utter reliance on God's mercy sustains him, most especially as he ministered to the people of his day and age, and amazingly still does to us today. For us, in the end, we come back to the fact that Jesus is calling each of us to sainthood. That doesn't mean comparing ourselves to someone like St. Augustine, or someone like Tom Brady, or anyone for that matter. It's about us and our recognizing our need for a savior and rejoicing that we have one in Jesus and following him.